You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. This is the Monday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, where we are talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your host, Danny DiCrescenzo, joined as always by Sibyl Barteau and Amelia Sack, plus Nick Costanzo. In our first hour, two Arizona politicians make headlines, and Kevin McCarthy isn't out of the woods yet for the speakership. You don't want to miss it. All politics, all hour one. So guys, we're all grumpy today, and I think it's because of the weather, an unexpected night snow, the worst kind of snow, because you wake up to it, and when you have to drive here, you have to clean off your car. So how are we feeling on this frigid Monday morning of finals week? I can't believe it's already here. Um, yeah, feeling definitely a little bit sleepy yesterday. It was a good day, though. I got a lot of work done, um, so it was really productive. But yeah, the week ahead, it's going to be, we're in the home stretch, so just, just getting over that hill. What about you, Seville? Yeah, honestly, same as Amelia, a little sleepy, a little stressed, um, doing all those final assignments and preparing for my final test. But honestly, it's kind of like the snow, even though it was an inconvenience walking through, like it's still in its pretty stage. It's not dirty from like a million cars driving over it. So, well, see, you walked, I had to drive, and I had to <laughs> clean off my car, and it took longer than I thought. What about you, Nick? How are you? This is your first finals week here at Hofstra. Yes, and it's going okay. And I just say thank you to my father for helping me clean off my car because that was a big mess and very frustrating on my manic Monday. But Manic Monday. Yes, I would also like to do a shout-out. Is that okay? You could do a shout-out. It's awesome. okay. Awesome. So it is my best friend's birthday, 19 years old, Mr. Tom. And we've been friends since fourth grade, so I just want to wish him a happy birthday. Happy birthday, Aww. Tom. And uh, don't go anywhere, Nick, because you're going to give us the weather. We already kind of spoiled it for you, but you'll have a chance to elaborate. Uh, besides the snow... What is the forecast for today? Absolutely, Danny. So for today's weather forecast, it is currently 38 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. And up in the sky, it is cloudy with a little bit of rain. It's coming. The rest of the day should be 35 degrees with an expected high of 42 degrees during the day and a low of 32 in the evening. Cold December weather is in the air and snow is clearly, as we discussed, on the ground. So pack on those layers and take out that little scraper. Get that ice off. No good. No good. Yeah, I'm wearing. I think I'm wearing four layers this morning. What? Yeah. Wow. No, I, like Minnesota well, stuff. Well, I I hate the cold. 
I hate the cold, but I also don't hate it as much as being overly hot. I'd rather be cold than hot. I agree. Same. I 1,000% agree. Thank you. I also, like, appreciate winter fashion more than summer fashion. Yeah. I always say that. Yeah. I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's more of an East Coast thing. You'd rather be cold than hot, but that's just me. Uh, But, you know, it was a slow weekend in the news. I felt like nothing cool was happening, but... So Bill and I were able to scrap together, I think, at least five things that you should know this morning. So without further ado, Sybil, glad to have you back on the show. What's going on in the world? A new survey from AP VoteCast today revealed voters under the age of 30 voted for the Democratic Party versus the Republican Party, 53% to 43% in the 2022 midterms. That's down from the 61% to 36% split in 2020, suggesting the Democrats need to make up some ground in 2024. The historic Orion mission to the the moon ended yesterday after the unmanned spacecraft crashed down in the Pacific Ocean. The Artemis One, which deployed Orion, hopes to bring astronauts back to the moon in the near future. Twitter is relaunching its premium subscriber-based service, Twitter Blue, for web and iOS at a higher price than before. The service would allow users to get a blue check mark on their profile and access special features. This is Twitter's second attempt at a launch after their first go ended in disaster with abundant fake profiles. Morocco made history two days ago after its victory over Portugal, which allowed them to become the first African country to advance to the World Cup semifinals. Today would have been Frank Sinatra's 107th birthday. The New Jersey-born singer-songwriter was famous for doing it his way, even if he didn't write that song. He did not write that song. Thank you so much, (laughs) Sibyl. New Jersey legend Frank Sinatra. Yes, um, one of the titans of our uh, of our state's culture. <laughs> Happy, w- which would have been 107th birthday, Frank Sinatra. But we have a lot to get to in this first hour. We have Aaron Blake from the Washington Post joining us later to talk about one Arizona politician. We're going to start with another Arizona politician or aspiring politician, Carrie Lake. We talked about her on the show a couple times. Everyone's favorite defeated Republican gubernatorial candidate is added again because on Friday of last week, see, everything was happening on Friday. It's going to be a common theme this hour. On Friday of last week, Carrie Lake sued election officials in Arizona, contesting the certification of the results and asking to be declared the winner despite a lack of evidence of voter fraud. The suit targets her Democratic opponent in November, Katie Hobbs, as well as election officials in Maricopa County, which is Arizona's largest county. In the 70-page complaint, Lake called on the state court to simply declare her the winner or to have a new new election due to, quote, hundreds of thousands, end quote, of illegal ballots cast in Maricopa. Lake, a former news anchor, built her campaign upon strong ties to former President Trump's denial of the 2020 election. Maricopa County spokesman Fred Mosley said the courts are an appropriate place for Lake to challenge the results. And he stated that the county, quote, looks forward to sharing facts about the administration of the 2022 general election and our work to ensure every legal voter had an opportunity to cast their ballot. So we mentioned that there was some ambiguity as to whether the officials would actually certify the election earlier a couple weeks ago. They have since, but now Lake is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I, 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 I object and I should probably uh, be declared the winner or there should be a whole new election. Um, for me, it just screams sore loser. I mean, Nick and I were talking about this when we brought it up the first time. It's also a matter of consider the source. We want safe elections, but 
This is somebody who's been pushing election denialism their entire campaign, so it doesn't shock me that she's suing. I feel like she would have done something even if she had won, because she only lost by less than a percentage point, 0.6 percentage points. So she would have probably said there was some funny business going on, even if she won. Uh, so what do you guys think about what Carrie Lake is doing right now? We'll start with eeny, meeny, miny. I'm not going to say your names twice this time. I said Sabelia <laughs> that one time, and that was very <laughs> embarrassing. We'll start with Amelia this time. Yeah, so as you just mentioned, Danny, this isn't really surprising considering her ties to Trump's denial of the 2020 election and that she was kind of running on this the whole time. Despite it being a very close race, there's really no evidence of voter fraud. Uh, Lake has alleged votes were cast illegally and that Republican voters were disproportionately voting on Election Day and that they were disenfranchised because of long lines and issues with some vote tabulators not reading ballots in Maricopa County, uh, which is just that's the my, the lines. That's like such a minor issue. And I really think it's a baseless claim. And as you mentioned, it does just kind of sound like she is a sore loser. What about you, Sibyl? Yeah, I feel like this is um, like a precedent that's been set by um, our former president to for all sore losers to just claim voter fraud whenever they want, kind of. And it, it is baseless. Um, I don't know. And I want to make it clear that Lake is actually one of the few exceptions in this midterm of somebody who is being very vocally against the count and not conceding. Most of the candidates who at least nominally said they thought the 2020 election was ambiguous or was even rigged eventually did concede i mean this is just what happens in democracy also lake is not alone in losing and being a spokesperson for trump mr trump is actually one in five on behalf of his candidates that he spent heavily on carrie lake lost uh the michigan his michigan michigan governor candidate uh, Tudor Dixon lost, obviously lost in the Nevada Senate. That was what determined the balance of power in the chamber. He lost in the Pennsylvania Senate. And, of course, he lost in Georgia with Herschel Walker last week. So Carrie Lake is not alone, and there's nothing to suggest that her count is any in any way fraudulent. The New York Times actually reached out to all the people that her campaign spotlighted, at least all the voters, and most of them said, yeah, we had long lines and it was a little difficult voting, but... Not few of them actually said, I felt like my ballot wasn't legally cast. And I think that's the big thing. We have to stop conflating losing with, oh, there was something fishy going on. It was rigged against me and I'm going to sue. Now, obviously, Carrie Lake has the right to sue, but I really don't think her case has any legs to stand on. Nick, I know we've talked about Carrie Lake and the election status in Arizona. What do you think about all this? Well, the fact that she is suing, and that is technically democracy, whether it's correct or not, the fact that she's going out there and saying, well, I feel it's wrong. And then when Mosley said that he looks forward to sharing the facts, I really thought that was something that was good for democracy, saying, well, okay, you don't think the election was fair, but we're going to show you the facts, and we're going to work with you to ensure that you understand what's going on is what really was going on. And also paper ballots. I'm a fan of paper ballots. I think those would be good. You can't really have technical issues with those. You just do a little check or no check. We can go back to the 40s when you just put it in the little box and then you walked away. Mm-hmm. What do you think about paper ballots, guys? I think paper ballots could work. I just think they'll right. never catch on again. Yeah. I mean, this midterm was a mixed bag. Georgia, we knew the winner before midnight, which yes. I feel like there were zero complaints about, which is good. Obviously, some states, especially in the West take a long time. California 
takes a very, very long time. Shout out California. Just kidding. Um, the thing is, you just you, we're at a point in, techno, in technology's development with voting that you're never going to go back to paper ballots, unfortunately. Nick, I know you're a big fan. Um, but I think this is indicative more of just Arizona's unique situation with counting ballots in recent years than anything. It's it's an Arizona problem. I don't think it's a problem that extends to all of the country, but I see your concern. And I do think that Mosley not stooping to Lake's level of vitriol and anti-democratic rhetoric is good. He's keeping it civil. He's saying, okay, it's a lawsuit. You're allowed to sue. Right. Not stooping to her level, which I think is good. And I think ultimately the facts will come out that she lost the election to Katie Hobbs fair and square. And Amelia, you and I were t- saying this on the air. It was like, what, is Katie Hobbs just going to like be like, oh, I lost. Yeah. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I want to go back to your point on paper ballots, Nick. I think that there would just be so many people that wouldn't be able to vote if, you know, we were only doing paper ballots and we couldn't do mail-in and we couldn't do online. And I also think that... If no, we, definitely do mail-in. Yeah, if we do want to resort to like only like paper ballots, only one form of ballot, like then everyone needs to have off for election day, which like would just right. never happen in today's uh, Well, you know, if they just passed that law, it would be a totally different story. Yes, we should make it a holiday. I would say this, three days is good with the mail-in, right? So mm-hmm. say you have it on a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday, and you're making it a holiday, plus the mail-in, you gotta make it easy for these people. People need to have accessibility, that's democracy. Exactly, it should be a holiday. They really, they really should have passed, honestly, really should have. And the, the fact of with Carrie Lake is there's been no overwhelming evidence to support her case just far, but it's within her, within her right to sue, even though I think that ultimately right. it's going to not change the results because I really can't imagine that happening. But, you know, we're we're moving right along here on the morning wake up call. Another Arizona politician who was in the news this weekend coming up in just a second. But first, we're going to play a little favorite here on the morning show on Mondays. Little Dark Age by MGMT. You are listening to the Hofstra morning wake up call 887 WRHU. Little Dark Age, you are listening to the Monday morning wake-up call, Long Island Life, National News, International Issues, 17 past the hour, Danny Sibyl, Amelia, and Nick. Now, Carrie Lake certainly was in the news for what she was saying about the midterm elections, but another Arizona politician, finally we're going to name drop her, Kirsten Cinema, the formerly now Democratic senator from Arizona, well one of them, well, at least was one of them, before she left the party over the weekend, we're going to talk about her. I have a lot of feelings about Kirsten Cinema. I don't know about you guys, but it was a lot on Friday when she dropped a bomb on the Democrats saying that she'd be leaving the party and registering as an independent, citing it as a reflection of the type of politician she's always been since being elected to the Senate in 2018. She's the first openly bisexual senator in the history of the Senate, and this is what she said she's been since she was elected in terms of her independent streak in the chamber. Registering as an independent and showing up to work with the title of independent is a reflection of who I've always been. And it's a reflection of who Arizona is. It's a reflection of the folks that I talk to at the grocery store, hear from at the park. It's who we are as a people. We don't line up to do what we're told. We do what's right for our state and for our country. Cinema is now only the 10th senator since 1951 to switch parties when in office. This move obviously came only days after the Democrats thought Raphael Warnock had secured their caucus a secure 51st seat. But on paper, this doesn't change the Senate's voting math. Cinema did say she mostly intends to stick with the Democrats by at least nominally caucusing with them. And the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has stated that she'll keep 
her, her she'll keep her committee assignments. According to Cinema, really, it's going to be business as usual. I'm going to show up to work. I'm going to do my best for Arizona. I'm going to continue to deliver results for everyday people. Nothing's going to change for me. And I don't think anything's going to change for Arizona. And I think Arizonans across the state are going to say, yeah, that's the Kirsten we elected. Still, Cinema has developed into the second most conservative non-Republican in the Senate behind only West Virginia's Joe Manchin. Her cozy relationships with Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell combined with her reluctance to attend Democratic caucus meetings means that the Dems' grip on the Senate is just a bit more tenuous than we all thought. Cinema said in her announcement that she nor Arizona's are particularly partial towards partisanship and that aversion to partisan politics influenced her decision. We make decisions about what's best for ourselves, our family, and our community. And so we don't spend a lot of time thinking about, is this a Republican idea or is this a Democratic idea? Is this liberal or is this conservative? That's not how Arizonans... Now, the big thing here is the implications for 2024, where Cinema is up for re-election. She has not announced her re-election bid yet, but party affiliation matters a lot, as we've seen in these elections, where the Democrats might be spooked of running a primary challenger in the state, thereby letting her run as an independent and assembling a coalition of moderate Democrats, independents, centrists, and moderate Republicans to win. Because if a Democrat ran in Arizona, let's say they won an uncontested primary, it'd be a three-way race, and it would likely concede the election to the Republicans. So this is a very real politic move, I would say. It's, I feel like it says a lot more about cinema than it does the Democratic Party, although she would probably argue otherwise. Other Democrats haven't really come out and criticized the move openly, except for the exception has been Bernie Sanders, who called her a corporate Democrat. But before I get into all my emotions about this, I want to get your guys' take. Uh, so, so, Bill, what do you think about cinema's switch or defection from the Democrats? Yeah, um, I can see how, like, uh, Bernie Sanders would call her, what, what was it again? A corporate, corporate Democrat. Yeah. Um, because, like, I think that, I mean, like like it was said, um, she was facing a, a likely Democratic re-election challenge in 2024 because she angered her party by opposing um, key elements in its agenda. So I think it was kind of a move to save herself in a way. Um, Self-sufficiency. Yeah. Uh, Nick, I know you are a big fan of independent politics, so I want to get your Where reaction. Where did you get that from? You say it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Well... I thought if anyone would switch to being an independent, that would be Joe Manchin, which is interesting. But I think she's really doing this for herself because everybody knows if you run as a party, Democrat or Republican, you have a better chance of getting reelected. We all know that. You mentioned that. Arizona is purple. But if people are going to go vote for an independent, I think that they're voting more for the person. So and like you said, it's not really going to change the makeup of the Senate. But I guess it makes sense. Arizona's purple. She wants to reflect the views of all people, stay away from partisan politics, maybe get some people on both sides of the aisle, create a little bipartisanship, or maybe I'm being too hopeful. You tell me. Well, Arizona has Mark Kelly in the Senate, and he won by a wider right. margin. Yes. So clearly— Six points by Blake Masters, right? Yeah, and he is a pretty rank-and-file Democratic politician, and clearly that fact has not hurt him. Right. But cinema— 
and these numbers really jump off the page. A recent civics survey conducted right before the midterms found that her approval rating among Democrats was 7%. 7 in mm-hmm. Arizona. 27% from Republicans, 29% among independents. She's not winning a primary. She is scared to death of a primary. So there's no way she could even show face running again as a Democrat because she'll be primaried out. She's scared. She, see these num- she sees these numbers. And it's Rep. Rep Gallagher from Arizona, he's a congressman, he tweeted a photo of a hypothetical NBC poll about his primary odds against her, and he had a 60-point lead. So yeah. clearly, already, there are scares on her team of, oh, we can't win again. We can't. We can't do it. Because she's, a, as Sibyl mentioned, she opposed key elements of the Democratic agenda when it comes to removing the filibuster. She opposed raising the minimum wage with a theatrical thumbs down, might I add. And she skipped votes to run triathlon. She interned at that winery. She's she's a very ego, ego, almost egomaniacal politician in that she really cultivates this brand of personality where I feel like, like I said, this move is all about her and all about her survival politi- politically. Uh, Amelia, what do you think about this? Um, yeah, just kind of agreeing with. I honestly just agree with what you're saying, Danny. What I was going to bring up um, was, you know, her opposing the minimum, opposing removing the filibuster and opposing raising the minimum wage. It just seems like she's only hurting the Democratic Party. So it's probably a good thing for them that she's leaving. But in terms of for herself, um, yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely interesting. And. This is a stab in the back. The New York Times did a great article on this. They they talked to people who voted for her, who campaigned for her, and they said this is a stab in the back for people who voted for her as a Democrat. And you, I, I think on some level it's fair. This is why you don't see a lot of party switching while you're in office. If she wanted to switch parties in 2024 and say, okay, I'm going to run this time as an independent, that's okay. But when you're in office days after the protection for marriage act passes days after the midterms officially really end she does this the timing is so conspicuous we're going to get into this with our uh conversation with aaron blake from the washington post it's a conspicuously timed event clearly she had it in her mind ready to pull the trigger whenever the midterms were over but like i said she's making it about her making it this big stink on twitter and saying this is this is who arizona is and like i said with mark kelly i don't think arizona is necessarily hungry for her type of politics, given the fact that she's broadly unpopular, even among Republicans and independents. If you have a 30% approval rating among independents, especially, and Nick, you love to talk about how the middle is really the key voting block. Right. You can't attract at least 40% of those people, you're in big trouble. Yeah, no, it's true. I thought she was going to stay a Democrat, though, but just be fiscally conservative, a little skeptical of President Biden's mass spending. But it was a shock that she did change over. It's going to hurt her, though. Like you said, it's tough to win as an independent. And her approval ratings are kind of spewed all over the place. I didn't know that. This is a dare to the Democrats. It's either you run a candidate and you split the vote or you leave me alone. That's what she's trying to say. That is that is the message here because she doesn't want to lose, to lose her election. I mean, who, who would, right? And the problem is her record in the Senate, while it may be pleasing to those who are in the middle, she seemed, and this is a great line from Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times as well, where she writes how she used the leverage she had in an evenly split Senate to benefit 
the financial and pharmaceutical industries. She single-handedly stopped the Democrats from closing the carried interest loophole, and it, that's a loophole that cuts Wall Street tax bills. And Cinema in, insisted on narrowing the law meant down to bring meant to bring down prescription drug, drug prices, and she did so with Joe Manchin's help. And she's frequently aligned with Joe Manchin. But you mentioned how Joe Manchin is not switching his party affiliation. I don't see, and this is what makes me think it's about her, not about really her principles. Because if anything, Joe Manchin's more of an ideological centrist than Cinema is. So why is he sticking with the Democrats and she's not? Part of me says that Manchin is confident he can win again as a Democrat because he has a national brand. People know him as the centrist guy. When you think centrist, you think Joe right. Manchin, and you think Chris, Kirsten Sinema is like, okay, like she's the second centrist. She's number two. She's trying to jockey for a type, a type of position. But here's the thing. She didn't even attend caucus meetings when she was a Democrat, technically. And let's face it, uh, Angus King and Bernie Sanders, they're Democrats in all but name, right? They may be independents, but very rarely do they disagree with the Democrats. Bernie Sanders will disagree further to the left as opposed to cinema or mansion who disagree to the right. So, like I said, she's doing it for attention, in my opinion, in the sense that she wants to make sure she can win again. And in, in many ways, it's a giant middle finger to the DNC and saying, all right, well, Arizona's my ter territory. You can support Mark Kelly, but I'm going to maintain my seat. And if you run a third candidate, you're splitting the vote. And speaking of attention, we have a song that I think is very fitting for a politician like cinema, uh, at least in my view, one of Charlie Puth's best, in my opinion, it's attention. And when we come back, Aaron Blake joins us live to talk more about Cinema's Party Switch. You're listening to the Hofstra Winnebago Call, 887-WRHU. We now are joined by Aaron Blake from the Washington Post. He's a senior political writer for the paper and a big friend of the show. Mr. Blake, sorry for the technical difficulties, but welcome to the Morning Wake Up Call. It's good to be here with you guys. Good to be here again. Nice to talk to you again, Mr. Blake. And my first question for you about uh, Kirsten Sinema, we're going to dial back to her. What about the timing of her announcement to leave the Democratic Party stood out to you? Well, it's really interesting that it came after the runoff in Georgia um, a few days beforehand. If Democrats had lost that race, we would have had a 50-50 Senate in which the a party switch like this could have a much bigger impact, um, especially if she left the caucus and joined with Republicans. Now, she's not doing any of that. She's kind of talked around the idea of caucusing with Democrats. But at this point, it seems like she will accept committee assignments from them and will effectively remain in the fold, giving Democrats a 51 to 49 majority. But I think all in all, it reinforces the narrowness of the majority and the fact that winning elections isn't always the only uh, determining factor for who controls Congress. And how does cinema's switch impact the Democrats' 2024 strategy at, na at a national level? Well, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens, particularly in her race. Uh, this was expected to be one of the most competitive races in the country. Um, the fact that she's doing this is very difficult to separate from her own political future. She was going to have a very difficult time winning a Democratic primary, likely against Congressman Ruben Gallego. So doing this puts Democrats in a little bit of a spot. Do they run a Democrat on the ticket against her if she runs as an independent and risk potentially splitting their votes and maybe handing the race to Republicans? Um, or do they not? It's going to be very difficult to dissuade the Democratic base from putting up a challenger to Kirsten Cinema because 
of who she is and the feelings that she engenders on the left wing of the party. Um, at the same time, we haven't really seen this situation in recent years. The, the Democrats don't run candidates against their independents who caucus, who caucus with Democrats like Angus King and uh, Bernie Sanders, of course. So a highly unusual situation, but one that could have big implications for control of the Senate after 2024. Will Cinema leaving the Democratic caucus behind bolster her low popularity, or is it too early to tell? It's, it's a difficult question because, you know, she's a very unusual politician. She's, in some ways, you know, a lot of people think she's trying to be the John McCain of the left in certain ways. So if you look at polling before the 2022 election, she was unpopular across the board with both Democrats and Republicans and also slightly so with independents. So putting together the coalition that she would need to win re-election is difficult. But if she has appeal to all wings of the party, even if it's not a majority of, of each party, um, depending upon who she's facing, that could be a, a winning uh, a winning idea. But I think mostly the, the lesson here is that she didn't see a path to win as a Democrat, which I think pretty much everybody assumed was going to be the case. Last last question before we, we let you go, Mr. Blake. I mentioned earlier when we talked about this story that it says more about cinema than it does a Democratic Party that she left. Obviously, in her op-ed and her announcement, she rebuked both sides for their increasing polarization and their partisanship. Do you think that's a fair spe- assessment? Do you think it's more about cinema than it is the Democratic Party, or is it the other way around? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think it's both. I, I think people undersell how much um, the Democratic Party has gone left in recent years. I, I think that there is less of a willingness to tolerate people like Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, whereas, you know, 20 years ago, there were lots of people like this in their party, and there wasn't the same kind of pushback. There's just more of a demand for loyalty on these kinds of votes. And so um, I, I think that she would have had more of a position in the party and she probably would have stayed a Democrat 20 years ago, but we're in a very different political era on both sides of the aisle right now. Um, But I do think you're right that most of this is about her 2024 prospects, um, about uh, how she feels within the party. And it's going to be an interesting situation, even though she's caucusing with Democrats, if this maybe frees her up a little bit to feel like she can vote against her party even more than she already has. All right. Once again, Aaron Blake from The Washington Post. Mr. Blake, glad to talk to you again. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks, guys. No problem. All right. So now we're moving on. 40 past the hour. Glad we can get Mr. Blake on the line. And Nick, before I forget, excellent report on what's going on in New York City. Sorry about rushing you into it, but sometimes that's just show business. Correct. Don't worry about it, Dan. You're good. All right. All right. So... One more congressional story for you all. It's about Kevin McCarthy. We've talked about him before. We're going to talk about him again. This is his pathway to not become Speaker of the House. So Republican Representative Kevin McCarthy of California has longed for the speakership for a long, long time. And Republicans just took back the House. He has no real rival. Donald Trump endorsed him. The issue for McCarthy is that the votes just aren't there. If you've seen Hamilton, he don't have the votes. The GOP will have the House in 2023 but with a very slim majority and 222 seats to the Democrats 212 means even a few defections could make all the difference. Six Republicans have already told McCarthy no, and that leaves him too shy of a majority with Andy Biggs of Arizona as the presumptive but fringe alternative. No speakership election has gone to multiple ballots since 100 years ago, 2023, but this one just might. 
to combat this, McCarthy's team is moving to, nego- to negotiate with these hard riders. And other Republicans, like Don Bacon of ne- Nebraska, who's moderate, said that they may compromise with Democrats to find a more moderate member of the GOP caucus to take the gavel. But for McCarthy, he's not concerned, apparently, he's not concerned about the size of his majority. He just wants to get to governing, and he fully intends to be Speaker when the House convenes in January 2023. We are prepared to lead, regardless of the size of the majority. One thing I've always learned, they don't hand gavels out in small, medium, and large. You get the right size gavel, and we will use it. So before we talk about this, I want to throw out some interesting statistics to you guys. So first of all, we're looking at, if you see the charts I put in the rundown, from 538, they did this great analysis of the challengers to McCarthy and the challengers to Speaker Pelosi. When you look at Pelosi's challengers, all of these Democrats come from districts, whether it's in New York, Colorado, South Carolina, these are all around the country. They come from districts where the partisan lean, that is the the average lean of the district, whether it leans Democrat or Republican, is pretty solidly in the Republican side or is very weakly in the Democratic side. Like, for example, uh, Anthony Brindisi from New York 22 was in a partisan lean of Republican 12. Now, that shows that moderates were the challengers to Speaker Pelosi's bid to regain the gavel when the Democrats took back the House. Looking at the challengers to McCarthy that have been at least confirmed so far, these are not moderate Republicans. These are Freedom Caucus, hard right Republicans, guys like Andy Biggs, already mentioned him, Bob Good from Virginia, Matt Rosendale, Matt Gates from Florida, remember him? Matt Gates is in a district that leans plus 38 Republican. So his incentive to challenge McCarthy isn't coming from the left, it's coming from the right. This is what makes this instance so remarkable that it's a smaller amount of Republicans, but they're more ideologically conservative because you would expect that's the moderates of the party because there's such a gravitational pull towards the middle. They would be the ones saying, all right, let's, let's dial it back on this guy. He's a little too far to the right, a little too far to the left. But for the Republicans, they're saying McCarthy hasn't gone far to the right enough. They want him to go further to the right. And the interesting dynamic that will probably play out before January 3rd is McCarthy sort of twisting arms to ensure these Republicans, hey, I'm going to be as far right as you want. I'm going to you know, alleviate your concerns about my ideology. I'm going to support the former president. And it's just a weird, weird comparison between the two because it's, it's blowback from the more extreme end of McCarthy's party and it's frustration with the establishment too because frustration with the establishment probably at an all-time high after Herschel Walker lost and McConnell's Senate leadership fund really didn't fund him didn't fund a lot of candidates across the country like Blake Masters and McCarthy's been in house leadership since 09 so this guy is pretty establishment at this point so that's that's my little numbers dive for all of you Nick, I know you've researched a little bit into McCarthy. I want to start with you on what this means for his odds of getting back, getting, well, not getting back, getting the gavel for the first time in his career. Right. Well, he has to align, like you said, with the populist Republicans, the America first Republicans. And he is sort of seen as the establishment to these right wingers. So 
she he does have to do something that's going to make them think, you know what, this guy is a quote-unquote patriot. He's a faith and flag conservative. He doesn't really go out and support the former president and say, President Trump was fantastic. He did great things. He doesn't really say that a lot. He does keep things quite centrist, and I think that actually plays in part because he is from California, right? So it is interesting. I don't know what he can do, though, to really bring over those populists. I don't know if it's something that he should say, like a quote or a motto, or bring up a certain policy. He does hit on energy independence a lot, right? Bring and the border. And the border. And the border. But he's not very partisan about it, right? He needs to take it a step further. Maybe hit on the fentanyl issue a little more, right? Maybe hit on, say, fossil fuels are the greatest thing ever for our economy. Just be more partisan. Bring up more quotes. I think that's what it is. Just getting them riled up by words. I think that's what it's going to be. But it's, it's funny because he's a guy who's on Fox News all the time. Trump doesn't have a problem with him. Right. So it, it, is there a, it feels like there's a third faction emerging. You have the more establishment oh, yeah. Republicans, and then you have the Freedom Caucus types. But right. now you have people who are like, we don't care about Trump endorsing you. We don't care that you've been in leadership for a long time. We want somebody who is truly bleeds Republican red. Right. And we see that in Andy Biggs. Or, Amelia, you have done some research on this too, there could be some alternative names that could come up if the speakership ballot goes to multiple ballots. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, Danny, this could go to multiple ballots. It hasn't happened since 1923. If he doesn't get the 218 votes in the first round, it could get a little sticky. House Republicans who are supporting McCarthy predicted that a number of lawmakers would run if McCarthy withdrew his name. Some have been saying that House Minority Whip Steve Scalise, McCarthy's top deputy, would emerge as the frontrunner in that case. And I see, I don't understand. I mean, when you look at all these conservatives, none of them speak to me as necessarily being more ideologically pure. I mean, these are people that voted in line with Trump's position almost 100% of the time, every time. Liz Cheney voted in line with Trump 93% of the time. So what makes you eligible to be the speaker? And it's interesting, Nick, because the majority is so slim that these small fringes of the party have such, such enormous sway. They do. Where you don't, or normally if you, if the Republicans got their way and they had a 40 seat blowout in the, in the midterms, McCarthy would be like, ah, six people don't want me to be speaker. Who cares? You know, I've, the, the other, I have more than 218 people who want me to. Right. Well, this is the difference between Democrats and Republicans. You have, like we were mentioning before, the centrist Joe Manchin. And you have people like Bernie Sanders. So you do have that divide, that ideological divide in the Democratic Party. But guess what? They work together. They vote on the same things. They barely split apart. Republicans are having a little bit of difficulty right now. Do they want Trump Republicans or do they want centrist Republicans? Because a lot of Trump Republicans bash Mitch McConnell. They don't approve of him. They don't like him at all. Yeah. There was that challenge to his Senate leadership. Obviously went nowhere. Right. Um, but it's, it's an example of their – and we heard this in, from Nicole Hemmer last show. These Republicans, they demand, they demand purity and they demand loyalty to the ideology more so than the, than the Democrats do. There's a lot more wiggle room for a cinema or a mansion to not attract ire from Democrats, although we'll see how much cinema tests the Democrats' patience going forward. But 
ult- prediction time before we wrap on this. Do you think that McCarthy will get the speakership? We'll go around the horn. We'll start with Nick. Yes. You think he will? Why? He will. It just makes sense. I don't really see anybody else stepping in and really taking it home. I think someone's going to cave in, whether it's Democrats or Republicans, and he is the guy that's most talked about. Andy Biggs? Do you think Andy Biggs would really no. get in there? Yeah, no. Exactly. He's not. It's You need a broad coalition. I think McCarthy has a broad enough coalition. Right. Plus, he's been the guy that's, he's like that kid in your class who runs for student council, and it's, in, it's his entire personality. <laughs> and you know, you, he probably isn't the best candidate in the entire school, but, but nobody. You have to give it But to you him. have to you have to vote for him because no one else. He's very persuasive. I will say that. Yeah, he talks very nice. So Amelia, you <laughs> think you think he'll get it even if it goes to multiple ballots? Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's no really super discerning factors as to why he wasn't. I mean, what you brought up, obviously, but I I don't know. I think I think he will still get it. And Sabelle, you think he'll get it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm in agreement with you. I think he's gonna get it because there's a lot of time to negotiate behind the scenes. I think that's probably the biggest thing working in his favor, that these people might not really be mounting a serious challenge to him. They might just be demanding some concessions, maybe some committee assignments, which that's just politics for you. But we're going to take a quick break, and I'm sure that McCarthy is feeling a little jealous over Speaker Pelosi's ability to just brush aside any challenges to her speakership. So we're going to play a song from one of my favorite artists, B.B. Rexa. Baby, I'm jealous. Listen to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 887 WRHU. Baby, I'm jealous by BB Rexa. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 54 past the hour. Almost done with hour one. Danny, Sabil, Amelia, and Nick. And and today, Amelia has a Twitter report for us in what I call "Say Stupid Things, Get Stupid Reactions" from one of the most outspoken Congresswomen in the country, Marjorie Taylor Greene, speaking at an annual New York Young Republican Club dinner on Saturday night. Um, so, Amelia, what did Marjorie Taylor Greene say to this audience at this dinner? So, to sum it up, she said that if she and Steve Bannon had orchestrated January 6th, we would have won. And she also supported um, an armed insurrection that day. So, really, not I, I like I feel like anything that comes out of this woman's mouth is just like why, like what that that's just like horrible takes and just like January sixth was already enough of a tragedy towards democracy and enough of like it just should not have happened and it uh, it's just her coming out and saying this is again it's not surprising because she is so controversial and just everything that comes out of her mouth is like garbage in my opinion but. Yeah, just something interesting. I, I looked on Twitter. I was like, why is she trending? And then I was like, oh, I was yeah. like, that's why. That's why. That's why she's trending. I mean, she gets in hot water a lot. And just to pull back a little bit for a second, when it comes to Trump-based, Trump world ideas about January 6th and whatnot, is it just me or has Trump been really, really quiet since announcing his campaign? And hasn't it been the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and others who have really been sort of on the stump for him saying this kind of stuff. Ever since the whole terminate the Constitution comment he made on Truth Social, Trump has been quiet. I don't know if that's just me. What do you do you guys do you guys feel the same? Yeah. You for feel sure. the same? And it's his loudspeakers like Marjorie Taylor Greene who are saying the things that I think Trump could say mm-hmm. or could hit on the same themes there's just no 
reason to say that. There's so many other issues right now. The Republican Party barely did well in the midterm election. They were supposed to have this red tsunami, and that didn't happen. So why are we still talking about January 6th? Inflation is an issue that they can hit on. The border, that's an issue they can hit on. They can hit on a lot of different things. They can talk about what they're going to do with abortion rights and if they're going to come to the middle. There's a lot of things they got to work out. And the fact that we're talking about January 6th, I would say to MTG, why? What is the reason behind that? I don't know. Right? There's so many issues in this world. So many. I think the theme of this hour has been that politicians on both sides, they have an incentive to do what they feel fits their brand. For Carrie Lake, it's denying elections. For Kirsten Cinema, it's going off on her own to save her electoral skin. For Marjorie Taylor Greene, it is saying stuff like this. For Kevin McCarthy, it's actually becoming more of a chameleon and pandering to the far right of the Republican Party. You know, it's it's very, very difficult in politics to be so principled. Right. And I'm not a huge Joe Manchin fan personally, but Aww. unlike cinema, <laughs> unlike cinema, he actually has at least nominally principles. Now, you can argue whether those right. principles are good or bad, but he is not leaving the Democratic Party. He said he's going to stay a Democrat, and he, you know what he's going to vote for, and at the end of the day, he does enough to actually stay a Democrat and actually do it for his own sake. Because if he was really worried about getting reelected, he would run as a Republican, and he would run as a moderate Republican. But instead, he stays close to his principles. Principles are, are hard to come by these days when there are so many factions within the two parties and you hear politicians do or say things that you think, why are they saying that? And there's always an ulterior motive. Right. Either. And for Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's making the news as much as possible. She's less of a politician and more of a conservative, hard-right celebrity at this She's point. She's an activist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you're allowed to be an activist, but, you know, if we elect you to Congress, I sure hope you also do some legislating, right? Right, yeah. sure. And that's what Joe Manchin does. He... He still believes in things like Obamacare. He still pushes for those things. He signs off on bills with President Biden and MTG. I think she really just said that because she wanted to rile up her partisan base at that dinner, I guess. Yeah, and let me be clear. It's not just Joe Manchin who is a principal politician. I, oh, sure, I think, I think Bernie Sanders is also another example of somebody who is never going to relinquish his principles. Um, yeah, he'll stay there. He'll, he'll stay there and... That's the thing. It's, it's rarer than not because politics is all about where you are, what you say. Half of the game is I don't like that person. That's half the game. Right. But if anything, if there's been a theme, it's that you have to do things to save yourself at some point. But that's going to do it for our first hour. Plenty to come in hour two. Two interviews, one about AI and one about taking yourself on a date. You don't want to miss it. It's next from 8 to 9 a.m. on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio. R-H-U. Hempstead. You discovered. You discovered. A cornerstone of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. W-W-R-H-U. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. 
You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. It is hour two here on 88.7 Radio Hofstra University's morning wake-up call where we are talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your host, Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Sabil Barteau, Emilia Sack, and Nick Costanzo. In this second hour, more concerns about TikTok, how AI can write your college essays for you, and France's gift to its young citizens. You don't want to miss it. Hour two, and you feel that gust of wind in your sails. Gotta say it, right, yeah. Dan? When the 10-second top of the hour plays, you're like, let's go. Something about it every every week. It makes me feel some type of way. Um, but that's that's just the beauty of doing a show for multiple hours. A very rare pl- privilege here at WRHU, usually the community volunteer shows. But for us, every weekday, 7 to 9 a.m., only on Radio Hofstra University. But we're going to get right into things this hour, and I think it's going to start, as we always do, with future News 12 weatherman Nick Costanzo giving us the weather update for those who are just tuning in. Obviously, if you look outside, I'm sure there's still some snow on the ground, but Nick, what's the forecast? And for today's weather forecast, it is currently 38 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. And up in the sky, it is cloudy. The rest of the day should be 35 degrees with an expected high of 42 degrees during the day and a low of 32 in the evening. Do not let the chilly weather distract you from focusing on all your subject matter for finals. Plus, the Unispan is open, so use it. It's You know what's weird? The Unispan opened and it feels like it was never closed. Yeah. Mm, I think that's just yes. the that's just the magic of doing Fever something. Dream. And then when you're in there and you look at the damage, you're like, oh, this is not bad. Yeah. I think they might have overreacted a tad, but that's a conversation for another day once it's fully repaired. Uh, but when it comes to what's going on in the world, like I said, a slow news weekend, honestly. And to break down some other headlines that we didn't get to in the first hour, we have, as always, Sibyl Rateau. Sibyl, ready to break down what's going on in the world, as usual? Yes, Yeah, all right, let's go. Hofstra's men's basketball fell to UMass in the Barclays Center by a score of 71 to 56. The game was a part of the Hall of Fame Classic. D-Stone Dubar led the Pride with 13 points and seven rebounds. The Pride will play South Florida in the Sunshine State at at seven next Monday. WNBA star Brittany Griner was finally released from her 10-month-long Russian imprisonment after President Biden negotiated a prison swap. Kamala Harris swore in Karen Bass as LA's first female mayor. 
Last week, a small city in Arkansas elected 18-year-old Jalen Smith, making him the youngest black mayor in the U.S. Iran has executed a second prisoner who was detained and convicted for crimes committed during the nationwide protests. All right, thank you so much, Sibylle. And, you know, obviously a lot of stories you mentioned, ongoing stories, but the politicians who made history certainly noteworthy in Arkansas and in Los Angeles, and also the Iranian protests continue. But something that also is continuing is our show's hyper-focus on the app of TikTok. And to break that down further, Amelia has another story about how politicians nationwide are growing more concerned about the platform. So Amelia, take it away. Of course. So in Indiana, their attorney general sued TikTok on Wednesday, saying the platform misleads its users about the level of inappropriate content and security of consumer info. Republican Attorney General Todd Rakita claimed in a complaint filed Wednesday that while the social video app says it is safe for users 13 and older, the app contains salacious and inappropriate content available to young users for, quote, unlimited periods of time, day and night, in an effort to line TikTok's pockets with billions of dollars from U.S. consumers. A separate complaint from Rakita argues that the app has user-sensitive and personal information but deceives customers into believing that information is secure. Now, I know we've talked about this last part before, but I wanted to touch on um, the children's privacy and the kind of content that children are exposed to, that aspect. So, of course, that's important. Um, But part of this, though, I think is the responsibility of the parents and Perhaps this means TikTok enforcing stricter parental supervision tools. They have them now. It's called digital well. They're digital well-being tools. Um, you go to settings and privacy, and then digital well-being to access the tools, where um, they can parents can go in and limit co- limit content that their children are seeing. So, in terms of keeping kids safe, again, I think that you know maybe TikTok does need to put stricter rules in place, but ultimately that is the responsibility of the parents. But I want to know your guys' thoughts on you know TikTok safety concerns for our data, and as we're seeing in this article, um, the safety of children on TikTok. Well, I mean, as young teens, kids basically get a computer they can hold in their pocket and the internet at their fingertips. It's really hard to restrict information because kids are smart; they'll find a way around it. We were all that kid who was like, ooh, I found a way around the parental controls. Hee <laughs> look at me. <laughs> we're all that kid. It's really hard to do this. You have to go to extreme measures to really ensure that kids are not getting information from wrong places or getting the wrong information or getting bad or inappropriate information. That's why I put in the rundown the link to the article about how Texas might just outlaw social media entirely. Um, a, a Republican lawmaker from North Texas is you know, writing a bill that would just make social media illegal for those under 18. How would they regulate that? I They can't. I don't think that. I think it's just that's impossible. just trying to rally up your base. It's the private sector. But see, it's like, how far does free speech extend? When are you allowed to absorb the freedom of information? Do you have to be an adult to do that? Like, I don't... It starts crossing these weird ethical lines of who we consider to be full citizens because isn't don't you have a right to the freedom of, of information along with the freedom of speech or is that different? No, it's the same thing. It's not going to happen. Wow, you seem pretty dismissive, Nick. No, because I'm taking <laughs> mass media with Professor Gershon, great professor, by the way, if you're listening. And it's true. This is the private sector. And we talked about this too. Politicians can't regulate 
the private sector. They can't just go in and say, oh, can't use Twitter. Oh, can't do this on this social media app. It just doesn't work as much as they want to. And I will make a comment about the kids. God willing, if I have kids one day, they're not going to have the TikTok. No TikTok for them. No Staying TikTok. away. No crazy stuff. I'm sorry, Amelia. It's I'm okay. sure your kids will be doing the renegade and all that fun stuff. <laughs> right? They'll be doing the little bake-offs. But no, no TikTok for my kids. And I do not think this bill is going to pass. It's just unconstitutional. And it's impossible to work in with the private sector. Well, I will say that this bill, two things. One, this bill would be would force social media sites to verify a user's age with a photo ID and then allow parents to request the removal of their child's account, which I don't know how that would work. Um, a lot of angry kids. A lot of angry kids. And second of all, my girlfriend Nicole texted me a list of things she's seen on TikTok, and most of them I can't say on air. So there are a lot of, and let me be clear, back to the, really the lawsuit part of this, there is a lot of inappropriate stuff on TikTok that kids should not be exposed to. Right. There you know, is. There are a million little subcultures on TikTok, many of them are not for those under 18 or under really 16 or 17. Um, so the fact of the matter is that when you see these lawsuits, it's not only coming from a national security perspective, it's also coming from a parental perspective. And you know we've seen the parental voice become more of a fixture in the right's political rhetoric. I mean, it really started to come into full effect with the election of Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. He right. made a, a big deal to talk about critical race theory even though you know if you ask most people they don't know what it is it's just the idea of parents having control and you see this with Ron DeSantis too in Florida the idea of parents having control it speaks specifically to voters on the right who are concerned about these things right so, and that actually goes back I have an example just popped in my head like a bright light it was awesome. boom so Ron DeSantis wanted to pass a bill I think it was called the anti-woke legislation anti yeah and he basically wanted to eliminate all teachings of quote-unquote critical race theory or anything that discusses differences between race or socioeconomic status he wanted to eliminate that completely from public schools but it was struck down so I it's, thought that would it's like it's becoming a popular culture war piece of ammunition right and the attorney general from Indiana who made the lawsuit is really talking about how this is all available on an unlimited basis. So not even in a classroom where you're there for just part of the day. On your phone, you can scroll on TikTok for as long as you want. So yeah. having that always there because, and you know, also the algorithm, we talked about the algorithm last time, you know, what if a kid accidentally likes or forwards a post or reel or whatever that they enjoy or they didn't, or I'm sorry, accidentally likes or watches for a long time or sends a TikTok to their friend that really isn't for them, all of a sudden their algorithm gets messed up and now they're seeing things that they really shouldn't be seeing. There are a lot of concerns, but you just can't regulate it. And if you don't want your kid on TikTok, don't give them a phone so young. I right. think that's the only answer. I mean, but obviously a kid can just talk to their friend who does have a phone. It's like the example, this is a perfect holiday example. Let's say you tell your kid that Santa Claus is real. He is. Which he is. Um, hmm. But let's say your kid is on the bus and he talks to their friend and his friend goes, Santa Claus, Santa Claus isn't real. And your kid is devastated and he comes home and he's like, Mom, Dad, is Santa Claus not real because little Jimmy said he's not real, right? You can't control that as a parent. Yeah. That's the perfect 
holiday-centric example that you can't control at some point. You really have to just accept the fact that your child can absorb information independently of what you want them to absorb. Yeah. And it, whether it's on TikTok or whether it's finding out that Santa Claus isn't real, which is fake, um, there there's nothing you can do. What do you want to say, Sybil? Sorry, um, I cut you off. No, I was just gonna say I think we're like kind of in a new age where it's becoming normalized for children to become exposed to um, like more adult information and adult content because we're not in an age where like for example when it was when kids pretty much just had TV like there were there were um, channels that parents could block and shows that parents could control but it's it's hard to like tell be that one parent to tell your kid oh you can't be on TikTok when everyone else is on TikTok it's not going to stop them from seeing you know other content I've you know kids kids now are seeing different things that what we were seeing when we were kids it's it's just a different era and unfortunately as Nick has been saying you can't regulate it and this lawsuit I don't know if this lawsuit is going to go anywhere like it's just it's more of a symbolic thing than anything it reminds me a lot of what Carrie Lake was saying in the first hour it's more to take a stand but the stand right. won't get you anywhere although this suit definitely has more legs to stand on in my opinion there's, there's a case to be made here yeah. um, can I can I make a quick yeah, political sure. statement go, about go this? Go for it. Go for it. So, I also see this where on social media, think about it. What political party utilizes it more to rally up their base? The Democratic Party. You saw Beto O'Rourke, right? He was doing his little TikTok dances. I saw so many more Democrats than Republicans. The only thing I can think of with Republican social media is Senator Chuck Grassley on his Instagram. He was drinking a milkshake from one of the famous diners or, in his um, area. Or libs on TikTok is pretty popular, conservative Right, there's a lot. Content. Of, Democrats just utilize TikTok a lot more, and that's why they get younger voters out too. No, right. libs of TikTok is a conservative thing. No, I'm talking about Democrats on TikTok. Oh, yeah. Yes, libs of yeah. TikTok is a conservative yeah. thing. But right? that's like the one like group that's really prominent. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. But they're not politicians they're just basically activists exactly. who are trashing the left yeah uh, owning the libs as they right, say right owning the libs right um but but i understand i understand maybe it's a concern in terms of how they're utilizing social media although i will say trump really changed the game in terms of how candidates use social media so he was probably the originator of how we see candidates use twitter and stuff right. like that today um but speaking of giving information that you just can't help but hear um, did you guys know that there's AI now that can write your assignments for you? Wow. I believe it. Um, Don't tell Hofstra. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Mm. It's, I got to break the news. Um, <laughs> it's this software called OpenAI. I actually tried it yesterday. Uh -oh. And you give it a prompt, and then it writes things for you. Is it glitchy or is it? It, like... it actually works. Oh, like, wow. Like, I asked it. I generated, you're going to hear it in the interview. I generated a question to ask this person, and it gave me mm -hmm. a pretty good question. Um, so this is information that if you were an otherwise good student, now you're tempted to be like, oh, AI can write my papers for me and it's finals week. Is it free? Is it, it's free. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you're asking for a friend? Just for research purposes. You're asking for a friend? You're asking for a friend? Well, I spoke to um, independent journalist Claire Woodcock, who, write, who wrote an article about this for Vice, talking about how students are using the software. And let's take a listen to what she had to say. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call 887 WRHU. And before we get to the interview, I just want to say that she, there is, the software is out there. It's free. It's scary how good it actually works. So listen at your own caution. Wake 
Wake up your mind. Start your day with Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Weekday mornings, 7 till 9 a.m. Lively talk about Long Island life, national news, and international issues from the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo. There may be an AI revolution brewing in higher education, and it's being driven by AI that can do your assignments for you. Here to discuss it with me is independent journalist based in Colorado, Claire Woodcock, who wrote an article on this phenomenon for Vice. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Claire. Thanks so much for having me. Anytime. Your article opens with a brief profile on a biochemistry student and how they use AI to complete written assignments they consider busy work in record time. For our listeners, can you elaborate on how this student is using AI like this? Yeah, for sure. So I think that when I was um, speaking with this student in particular, they were really emphasizing the fact that the sometimes I just get um, assigned homework that is feels like it's sucking up time. I could be working on projects that are more interesting to me or that take me closer to my career goals. Why am I doing this busy work? And I think that that shows that there are ways where people are maybe using the AI in ways that could be seen as unethical. Like maybe um, maybe your professor wouldn't like it so much if you were using AI in that sort of sense. But at the same time, like, like I don't know, is there a problem with busy work that we, that we need to reevaluate considering that? AI could do it for us and we can pass. And it's not just busy work, too. There's also been reports of students using this for application essays to get into college. So to go a little deeper into that, what are these programs that you write in the article like OpenAI and GPT-4? What do they do? Last week, no, I think the week before last week, recently, OpenAI released a new version, the chat gpt and it's supposed to be um, even more user user friendly than it was before, and it's open and it's open for everyone now. So uh, presumably anyone can go in. You can ask the AI a question, and it'll spit back a short answer response to you. And presumably, um, it seems hard in my opinion, but uh, people are doing it. They are using it to create essays, um, and there are some interesting things that come about this. Like since I wrote this article back in October, I would say. And since the new release, more people are talking about this now. And I've heard some interesting takes from professors that are looking into this because it's not exactly plagiarism. It's not plagiarism. It's something different that's changing the whole game. But they are finding that these essays, if you turn them in, um, just using it and you don't go through and edit ahead of time, you run the risk of like, yes, if you ask it very carefully, it, the AI can assign sources to your paper but and it might pull from a real journal it might pull from a real person that exists but they will be completely fabricated sort of um uh, essay uh, academic articles or things like that so i would say be very careful <laughs> yeah because it's it's interesting because usually you go online look at shag or something like that for the answers but now you don't even have to do that because the answers can be created within a second. So you mentioned that it could really avoid the plagiarism check. How do these prompts work when you input them into the software? How does it generate what it comes out with? 
Um, so that's interesting. There's there's a certain amount that we still don't really know because it go goes into this black box system and that's sort of how algorithms work. Um, but like I will say that there are um, there's like this huggable face GBT2 detector that um, professors are starting to use now and they are looking to see if something is going to likely come back as AI um, as it's been done by AI. So the like the plagiarism there's i think there's a new version of the plagiarism checker that's going to be coming around but also i think that if you're if you're in a small class then your professor and who, who like like if in a class where it's not like like hundreds of people um I think that your professor is probably going to be able to figure out if your the complete tone of your voice changes in your writing. So that's something to think about too. I think that professors moving forward are going to, going to have to be thinking like about like actually reading the papers that students. I'm not saying that they don't, but to be really thoughtful and thinking about if the tone of voice has shifted in a sort of way, because you know that there's there's a way that AI sounds and it doesn't sound quite like like you or I would sound like, right? Yeah, exactly. And if you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with independent journalist Claire Woodcock. Now, you write in the article, the title of your article is you say students are cheating using AI because of course they are, end quote. To what extent do you think, you maybe have mentioned this a little bit earlier, do you think the turn towards AI is a reaction against what kinds of assignments or essays students are getting nowadays? Or is it just the evolution of students trying to find a way around the system? You know, that's interesting. I think it could be potentially a little bit of both. I don't think that this AI was built for um, with uh, to like circumvent doing your homework in mind, you know, but uh, like inevitably, like students are smart and we're always looking for different ways. I'm a student too. I'm a grad student at the University of Colorado Boulder uh, as well. And we're always looking for ways to kind of like make make sure that we're maximizing our time and spending our time in ways that are actually productive i think that there's a sense of um that when we get into the, the academic system that we don't necessarily have ownership over our stuff we're told what to do by our advisors and by our professors but i don't think that that's true i really think that we should be feel feeling like we're empowered as students to um you know like um like try and find ways to maximize our time and use our our time to the, our, the best of our ability as we see it. Um, so I think that this is probably another way that um, we're trying to like find, find ways to, I don't know what's the word, um, just maximize our productivity in a system that wants us to be productive all of the time. But it's also a little bit of a resistance too, to saying like, hey, maybe like we should be focused on uh, a more like a think about the way that um, assignments are given to us. And maybe this is a bit of a reaction towards that. Now I have chat GPT open right now. And I'm going to ask okay. you one of the questions it just generated. The questions I've asked you so far were my questions, not from AI. I just asked <laughs> it to think of a question for this interview. Let's pick one here. Um, how do you think that AI can be used effectively in the college classroom? That's one they gave me. Effectively. Okay. So I... I wonder if there is a way that you can use AI if you're like really stuck um, trying like on a, on a section of a paper or a short answer or response question or something. And you just like, you don't have the words, they're not coming to you. You don't, you forgot how to do grammar, you know? And then like just being able to um, like get, get a response that makes it make sense in your head. Like, oh, this is how you write again. Just like as a reminder of how to write. I, 
and then and then do it better like do a better job of writing after that because i think that no matter what the human is always going to be a better writer than the ai the writing professors are not going to like that one but now you see there aren't a lot of articles about this sort of thing happening in ai you hear it once or twice there are some op-eds coming out some tech-based publications but nothing really concrete yet my last question for you before i let you go when do you think that this will actually become to the point where it's mainstream, where there's a policy, now it's on the syllabus, you can't use AI for assignments. When do you think that day will come? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I mean, I hope sooner rather than later. I feel like this whole semester I've heard uh, rumblings um, from professors and from graduate students, like TAs that are trying to grade papers and they're wondering if AI has been used in a section because it sounds completely different from the rest of it, but it doesn't fail a plagiarism check. You know what I mean? Um, so I would think that like, hopefully in the next like in if it's not too soon for the spring maybe by next fall i think that i think that this is something that you know like is going to really upend the way that we think about writing um and that can be a good thing or it could be a really bad thing but i think that the time to respond is imminent and once again that was independent journalist claire woodcock and we just wrapped up talking about how ai is helping college students by doing their assignments for them claire thank you again for coming on the morning wake up call sure thanks for having me 25 past the hour, and I think it's fair to say that during that interview, we were fooling around with OpenAI and ChatGPT, and it works, as yeah. you guys all saw. It Crazy. works. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nick was really, really happy he figured it out. Whoa, whoa, okay. I'm not going <laughs> to use it ever. Yeah, just yeah of course. giving a taste, a taste <laughs> test. No, just give it, like, simple so prompts, on. like, write a slogan for an ice cream stand. Yeah. Yeah, or, or like... It's you know not Come like an, not like an essay or anything i was raised right guys yeah right yeah we're, we do our, we you know as, as claire said the human is always a better writer than the ai yes so as i'm copying pasting things from the ai right now but the fact remains that it's remarkable how effective this software is so did it shock you that this thing is free and nobody knew about it oh yeah it's awesome yeah honestly it I mean, Amelia and I were saying it sounds too good to be true. Like, I almost don't believe it. But I mean, you guys were use, like using it for testing purposes, like right in front of us. And it's it's still almost too good to be true. And it's honestly, this comes at like the worst but best timing with finals right here. Best timing? I, <laughs> only worst timing, I mean. <laughs> uh, what about you, Amelia? What are your thoughts on this? I know you yeah, were also very it's, shocked. It's really neat. It's kind of scary. And I... When you were um, testing it out, Danny, I was like, does it cite sources? And you said, if it get, if you give it a specific enough prompt, it will cite sources, which is crazy. Like, that's like a new level. Yeah, and <laughs> it re reacts to prompts very well. Like, I gave it a maximum word count, and it hit, it hit the word count. It gave me, I asked it for a 200-word response to a, a prompt. It gave me a 197-word response. So it's very attuned to what you say. It won't take a lot of liberties. It's really interesting, and you heard in the interview how students are really using it for busy work. But imagine, and we touched on that a little bit in the interview, where a student uses this to write their application essay. That's oh, true. People pay hundreds mm. of dollars for coaches, for tutors, to write those things, really write them for them. But this changes the game. Yeah. Now you can just put in the prompt, you go to the common app, put in the prompt into the AI, and then it generates 
a random experience that could be a total lie, but you'll write about it. And unless it really contradicts something on your application, who's going to know? Exactly. Like, we don't have the technology to, like, figure out if something is, if a paper specifically is AI. Like, I can't imagine what that would look like because we can see if something's plagiarized. Obviously, it's out there somewhere. This is completely original work. Um, and the fact that it's free is very, very dangerous. And I asked this of Claire, and she thought that by next year, this will be on a syllabus saying, don't use AI for your responses. 100%. Because I'm sure, but still, how are they going to know? Why, why is this just not talked about? Sibyl. <laughs> well, my thing is, why is this not in the mainstream? Why do not more people know about this? Kids are smart. We already established that. And college kids are even smarter. How has there not been a mass movement of college students not just using their AI abilities to write papers for them to the point where professors and administrators have to react? I don't understand. It's yeah. interesting. Maybe them listening to this will cause some sort of reaction. Maybe. We could be breaking the news. <laughs> I remember I was shocked back in high school when um, my friend told me about this uh, math, like this site that could like do your math problems for you. Like you would scan a picture yes. of like the, oh, yeah. the math equation way. or whatever. I, I don't even know what it was math. called. Oh, Nick knows. <laughs> Honestly, I, I never like used so it. Bad. I know. Sometimes, sometimes photo math was faulty. Like sometimes it like wouldn't give you the right. You know, why would you guys know? Do you guys use it for your I, math problems? Full uh, disclosure, I am so bad at math. Me I, too. I should have used it. Honestly, I didn't. Girl. Oh, I did. But use I should have. <laughs> I was the king of Mathway. <laughs> king of Mathway sits on an empty throne. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's AI for you. It's really cool. You know, if you want to check it out, go to openai.com, try chat GPT. Although OpenAI Playground has a lot more specificity in its prompts, as Nick was demonstrating. So that's that's AI for you. But um, we're gonna move on from that. And, you know, by the way, it's finals week here at Hofstra University. I just want to let you know, all know that if you're listening and you're not from the Hofstra community. But let's move on to another story that Amelia is so excited to talk about as our resident Swifty um, about her favorite musical artist or one of her favorites. I don't know if it's her favorite, who is now dipping her toes into filmmaking. So what's going on with Taylor Swift's movie? Yeah, so Taylor Swift is going to be directing her uh, first feature film with Searchlight Pictures. The singer, songwriter, and director has written an original script which will be produced by the Oscar award-winning studio behind Nomadland and The Shape of Water. Uh, things like the plot, casting, all of those things are being kept under wraps until a later date. But landing the project from one of the world's most successful musicians is a coup. I, I mean... I'm just so excited about this, but I want to know your guys' thoughts well, first. Well, first of all, I want everyone to know that Amelia didn't know about this I until didn't. I told you. Yeah, thanks for bringing it to my attention. So you're a fake Swifty. I am. Okay, Boom. no, no, yeah. no. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> it was a busy weekend. I wasn't, I wasn't on my but phone that much. How did I know about this? I was busy, too. I, I don't know. I don't know. Are you a Swifty, Danny? Uh, no, I actually really don't like Taylor Swift. <gasps> really? Yeah. Honestly, I agree with you. Overrated. Wow. Thank you. Seville. Seville. Sorry. Are we having like a statement. moment right now? <laughs> <laughs> it's. I just don't. I like three of her songs. That's it. Really. Which three. I, all, all too well is like my favorite. Okay. And ten then, minute version or both. Okay. So ten minute version. Yeah. Yep, there is a. Ten the regular minute. version, then the ten minute version, and then like um 
I'm blanking on the title as how much I don't really like her music. Wow. <laughs> I feel like it's very it's it's just not for me. You know, I'm not it's the okay. target demographic. You're not. <laughs> yeah, <same. laughs> so but, I could, I'm not. Okay. I'm, I'm not who she's aiming for with her songs. Um, I like the Tay. I mean, <laughs> the Tay. The tay. The tay. You don't get she's a right boss. to say that. You don't get a right she's to say that. She's a boss girl. You don't get a right no, to say I that. No, I do. Come on. The Tay. Tay Tay. I think uh, the Rock called her Tay Tay once, and it just stuck with my in my head. Yeah, but are you are you the Rock? I'm not. Okay. I wish I was. Just making sure. Just making I really sure. do. No, I'm kidding. But I feel like Taylor Swift songs. When you go bowling with your friends, and it's like the night glow, right? You go bowling at 11 o'clock, and Taylor Swift is just bumping. That's the vibe. So I'm with you, Amelia. I like. Thank you. The Tay. That sounds like torturous because I both hate bowling what? and I'm not a fan of Taylor Swift. But okay, just by <laughs> so your... Bill's nightmare going bowling <laughs> with Taylor Swift. Despite <laughs> yeah. your personal feelings on her, she is very talented and does have a really impressive resume. She's won 11 awards from the CMAs, 40 uh, American Music Awards to her name, and has 46 Grammy nominations and 11 wins overall. And she has produced some pretty great music videos along with her songs that are really narrative and tell nice stories so yeah i, like I mean i don't opinion. i don't want to like disrespect her too much on the show because okay. i do respect her like her stance on feminism i think that she has a really good head on her shoulders as far as i've seen um and i do think that it's cool that she's directing her own um film because um i didn't watch that the music video but like didn't she do like a sort of like short film with like dylan o'brien yeah and the girl from stranger things mm -hmm. and that got a lot of attention i've been seeing videos of like the behind the scenes footage and i was like she like she seems like a real director i think that it's cool and like people dip their toes into like another career path um, yeah, no, I. So. <laughs> although I, I have nothing against Swift personally, I just don't like her music. But in all seriousness, I'm always in awe when an artist who's primarily known for music can dip their toes into other mediums, especially film, which is she wrote it and she's going to direct it. So that's no small feat. And I think that that's an incredible testament to her work ethic and her creative ability. So I'm sure this movie will get a lot of buzz. Oh, for sure. I hope it's evaluated based on merit and I, I have no reason to suspect that it'll be a bad movie I feel like her creative visions are usually good and for her her fans will come and see it in droves it'll be a financial success if anything yeah more yeah. money in her pocket yeah mm -hmm. her pockets are already lined are you gonna be there on day one um maybe not day one but I'll be there like not within day the one. first two weeks wow I because it it's it'll just be too chaotic I feel like you it'll tickets will probably sell out just like her Ticketmaster stuff. Like, oh it yeah, yeah. I can Wait, get you is free she tickets. Be in the, what? I can get you free tickets. I work at a movie theater. <gasps> oh, yes. thanks, Nick. You can get free tickets. Aww. I got you. Thanks. Wow. Watch the Tay. We, we all gonna go together? Yeah. yeah. Monday morning show. Yes. Field trip. Yes. It's gonna be fun. For sure. I'm not gonna see the movie. No offense, but if we go together, <laughs> oh, I'll watch it. If we go together, <laughs> yeah, if we I'm go saying. together, I'll watch hey, well, it. Look, we'll, we'll we'll go. We'll go see the movie together because right. we're all friends. Like, I wouldn't drive out of my way, get in my car, get, like, the cookie dough bites, sit down and just enjoy Tay on bites. the big screen. Yeah, cookie dough bites. No, I just, Really good I, stuff. No, I, I've had them and I love them. I just never thought them as a movie theater snack. Oh, they before, are. Before we stray too far off um, <laughs> and before we get into our next story, uh, have you guys ever had Nerd Ropes or the Nerds Gummy Clusters? Oh, yes. They're delicious. Just that's that's, well, that's, that's all you have to say. All right, so last thing. Okay. Um, but when it comes to Taylor Swift, I'm sure she's going to be doing uh, great with this film. 
she's very accomplished musically, and I think the music videos that she did and the short film that she did are just the tip of the iceberg for her filmmaking ability. So this is going to be a closely followed project, and this is, and now, you know, celebrity directors and celebrity producers are the norm. I mean, Drake is a producer for Euphoria. I don't know what he does. What? Really? Yeah, he is. Yeah, I always forget that. But see, like, you don't, because, like, in in a movie, in in a movie show, in a TV show, the producers have a lot of sway, but really the showrunner is the person who is calling all the shots at the end of the day. Everything has to pass through Sam Levinson, so. Yeah. Maybe that's why, Mm. I mean, Drake, do you think he really has the time to sit down on the set and produce a TV show? Yeah, I don't (laughs) think on, like, TV and movie sets, at least, producers, like, actually do much, I think. Yeah, but in a a film setting, as a director and someone who wrote the script, Taylor Swift is going to have a lot of creative freedom with this project, and I think that is going to allow it to finish close to her vision, which is which is good for her. Um, not good for you, like Olivia Rodrigo, but good for her. Um, that was good. Wait, I have a question. Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. To the group. Did Taylor Swift date Harry Styles? I feel like I'm so uh, far behind. Yeah. She At did? Like, really? one point a few years ago, okay. yeah. Okay. Interesting. Oh, Nick, it's, I'm so glad you brought up dating. Yes. Because this interview coming up is about when you go on a date with yourself. Oh. Sounds crazy. It's interesting, but I, I read this article in The Atlantic. I was moved. I had to reach out to the author, and we talked about taking yourself on a date. Here's our discussion. You're listening to The Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 887-WRHU. The frequency, 88.7 FM. The call letters, WRHU. The website, WRHU.org. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by Senior Associate Editor of The Atlantic, Faith Hill. Today, we'll be discussing her recent article, Take Yourself on a Date, which explores how to best spend your time when it's just you. Ms. Hill, thank you for joining me this morning. Of course. Thanks for having me on. How would you define, as you describe it in your article, a self-date? So I think a self-date is basically an appointment for your alone time to sort of do whatever you want to do. Um, So it's a chance to really be intentional about your solitude and also to celebrate it. Um, You know, it's not the passive time you happen to have alone in between other things. It's really a way to think about how you want to spend your time and then, you know, to make kind of a solo ritual of it. For me, an introvert, that sounds pretty fun, but you write about how Americans sort of fear or see a stigma around solitude in our society. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, of course. You know, I think we have sort of like a long history in America of feeling complicated about solitude. Um, For a lot of our history, it was like not really encouraged to be by yourself and be in private. Um, And I think we still have, you know, some lingering elements of that. Um, There's research about, um, you know, people really like not doing things alone because they assume that they will be judged as um, lonely or not having friends. Um, and, and you know, I think that there is a lot of concern about uh, loneliness in America, and a lot of that is very real. Um, but the result is sort of that, like, uh, solitude kind of gets cast in a bad light when we talk so much about loneliness and not enough about, um, you know, how people also do have a natural need for alone time, different people, different amounts. But... Um, but yeah. And we had the pandemic, which really forced people to come to grips with some, at least some solace and being alone. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think people had really different experiences of aloneness in the pandemic and some people had 
too much solitude, right? And some people had not enough if they were, you know, maybe in a house with roommates or with kids. Um, but either way, I think a lot of people felt like they did not have a lot of control over their alone time. Um, and I, I think now, you know, pandemic is still going, but we are kind of like emerging from a lot of social distancing measures or we already have. Um, and I think people still feel weird about solitude um, and they're sort of trying to get used to it again or to like renegotiate their relationship to it. Um, and I think self-date is really a way to like take control over that solitude again, you know, remind yourself that it's yours to spend how you want um, and and then to sort of figure out what makes you feel good. So um, for some people, I think it's like very small amounts of alone time. Um, and, and for some people, it might be longer. And, you know, it's sort of like you don't have to be a purist about solitude. It's sort of like, OK, to do it in the way that works for you. And if you're just tuning in, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by senior associate editor for The Atlantic Faith Hill. One line in your article I found really interesting was what you wrote author Julia Cameron said about alone time in America, where it's puritanical, i.e. Americans see work as lonely and solitary, but fun as loose and a social activity at heart. Why do you think that still is so commonly held by people? Yeah, it's so true. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, still have those weird feelings about being seen alone in public. Um, but yeah, we've also just, you know, we have this sort of like, strong puritanical elements, as you just said, in American culture, where like, work and work ethic is very highly valued. So I think like, you know, we talk, we really highly value work ethic, but then also social connection. So if we have time alone, we sort of see it as like the time to be productive, or as like empty time where you're not socializing, and then you're like, am I lonely? Um, and we just don't really associate aloneness with fun but you know i think if a lot of people sort of explored their alone time and how they could have fun with it then they you know they could think of those things as as related so here's where i want to test the limits of that puritanical mindset with you so hypothetically i lay on my bed all night i eat ice cream i play pokemon on my nintendo ds i get nothing done when i have things to do is that a self-date or is that self-indulgence I think it can be a self-date. I think, you know, I think there are really special elements of like being alone in public, but I do think like the self-date is not actually defined by being in public. It's defined by, you know, making it sort of a, a ritual for yourself and sort of the attitude that you look at your alone time with, um, you know, sort of seeing it as special and like sometimes set aside rather than just like it happens to you. It's kind so of that <laughs> So then where where would the line be between making your alone time have meaning and be of value versus your alone time is purely negligent of other things? <laughs> um, I know I think if you're like alone all the time, it's probably not good for most people. So you don't want to be, you know, doing it too much or not getting your other things done. But I think in terms of like the activity that you're doing with your, you know, your self date, like. I don't think that would be a wrong activity if that is what is meaningful to you. You know, I think you're playing video games or whatever could be, maybe it's really special to you. Oh, it definitely is. It definitely is. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> I give you permission. <laughs> Thank you. If you're just tuning in, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo joined by Faith Hill, the senior associate editor for The Atlantic. Do you feel that there's a relationship between self-dates and self-love? Are they related? Yeah, I think they are related. You know, I hesitated to use that term in writing because it's like such a buzzword, but I think that you are right that like, 
you know, one thing I talk about in the article is the self-talk, which is, you know, sort of the internal conversation you have going on in your head. Um, and I talked to a researcher who told me that, like, that can be really good for introspection, but uh, you sort of have to do it in the right way. So one thing that helps, uh, you know, so that people don't sort of fall into a rabbit hole of rumination um, and sort of like, you know, thoughts that are not helping them is to think of themselves in the second or the third person rather than the first. Um, so, you know, it's like, because we're usually kinder to other people than we are to ourselves, it's like actually thinking of yourself as another person. Um, so I like to think of the, you know, natural extension of that as like, you know, you shouldn't just like do something as yourself. You should actually like take yourself on a date, you know, as like a, as a, you know, kind and romantic gesture, like you're wooing yourself. It's like a special thing. Um, so I think it sounds silly, but it is actually like, um, you know, good to like treat yourself as if you're someone that, you know, you need to get to know. Absolutely. That's a form of self-love. Yeah. I could see that. And for my demographic, specifically college students, very anxious group of people, I can tell you that. What advice would you give to them if they want to establish a sort of self-date routine to ease their anxiety and to treat themselves at least once once in a while? Yeah, I would say that, you know, they can start small and sort of dip their toe in. So <laughs> they don't need to like, you know, do the self-date every single week if it feels intimidating. They can just try it out sometimes. Um, and then also like there's no one way that it needs to look. Um, so you know, if they want to be out in public, that is great. And even, you know, within that, there are different things you could do. So like, I like to go to the movies by myself, because it's not so not so visible to other people, like I still get to be kind of in the dark. Um, other people might feel comfortable, like sitting at a restaurant alone, um, you know, or you could go to a museum or a park. Um, but then also, it's okay, if you actually just want to like, stay home, and you can still look at your alone time as special. Um, and sort of pick something to do that is meaningful to you. The last thing I wanted to ask you is about the article, because it starts with you walking from your office to the movie theater. You're in public. You're just you say it's just you and the occasional passerby. What's the value of separating yourself from the the public sort of sphere? You're just isolating yourself with relation to everything and everybody else. All the other stimuli sort of melts away. I, I think I like to get a little bit of like a mix of different types of solitude on my self date. <laughs> so I like being in the movie theaters. I'm kind of around people. It's like somewhat public and I get to watch a movie. Um, but then when I leave, I like that walk back to actually just have some quiet and to really be able to like hear my own thoughts and have reflection about it. Um, and I like to walk cause I'm just like moving. So it like helps me get out of myself a little bit. Um, so yeah, it's sort of like the way that I've, combined different types of being alone to to suit my my self-date needs and once again that was senior associate editor for the atlantic faith hill talking about her recent article take yourself on a date miss hill thank you again for your time thank you so much back again on the morning wake up call 47 past the hour danny sabille amelia and nick and we're almost done with our second hour of the show only one more show after this i cannot believe it but we have to continue on a big story that broke last week, continued over the weekend, was in France. So free condoms are coming to French pharmacies in 2023. That's right. If you're a French citizen under 25, your condoms will be free of charge starting January 1st. President of France Emmanuel Macron 
announced the policy on Friday, calling it a, quote, small revolution for prevention. Health authorities in France are seeing a spike in STD rates. Infections rose 30% each of the last two years. Macron has been outspoken on the issue of young sexual health, saying the country has a, quote, real issue. A study from last year by the student health agency Hemi showed that more than a quarter of young French people say they use condoms, quote, not always or, quote, never. Macron initially said on Thursday that condoms would only be free for citizens 18 to 25, but the backlash from activists on behalf of minors led him to expand eligibility to those 25 and under. So in terms of contraception, this is a revolutionary idea, especially in the West. Um, you see a lot of emphasis being put on giving resources, and France already was allowing um, contraception, contraception to be free to all women under 25 before. So this is just a step forward for France. And also they were allowing people who got condoms on prescription to have that money reimbursed by the by the health service in the country. But a lot of young French people didn't know about that policy. So now it's all front and center. So I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, what's happening in France because this affects young people like us. You know, it's a it's a step towards addressing a problem in France's young person community. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting and a good thing generally. Um, I do wonder if STIs were on the rise just because people couldn't afford condoms. Like, I don't know how much of an actual, like, if it'll make a significant change in those rates, but I do think that it's a step in the right direction. I think that if the U.S., you know, implemented something like this here, it would be great because, especially in the age of Roe v. Wade being overturned, um, you know, more access to contraception would equal less unwanted pregnancies. And, of course, unwanted pregnancies can result in abortion. And if a woman doesn't have access to an abortion, again, I think it's just a great preventative measure. Um, unfortunately, though, I don't think something like this would happen in the U.S. just because I feel like talking about contraception and, you know, sexual health, it's so taboo, um, especially in terms of like these older politicians like talking about like young people's sexual health and contraception i just i just don't think it would really happen here but i think it would be smart yeah well macron is a young guy um so he's definitely somebody who is more acutely linked to this issue and it's a uniquely french thing i will say i mean um but in the u.s though we have seen rises in stis and i think that's something that could really help us in 2021 syphilis shut up by 26% to reach its highest rate since the 50s. So definitely we have we have issues here. Um, Nick, do you have anything to say about what's going on in France? Yeah, well, you just hope that making it free is going to motivate people 18 to 25 to actually go out and purchase them because well, they are- Not even purchase, they're free. <laughs> yes, thank you for picking <laughs> up my misworthing. <laughs> no, because it was so silly. Get them, get them, receive them, obtain them, not purchase, wow. God, yeah, I'm it's such free. A fumble. I'm gonna remember that forever, guys. It's free. <laughs> it's free. Um, and free. also, um, with this policy shift, it's an example of a country making strides in actually helping people get access. But another facet of this is education. My sex ed class was one day my senior year of high school. That was it. That was all I got. I went to a Catholic school, so I didn't even have one. Exactly. Same. That's even worse. I went oh, wow. to a Catholic yeah. school, and it was just don't do it. That's yeah. all. And yeah, they, they completely graze over that one. So you can give people resources. <laughs> and this just, this goes for beyond sexual health. You give people resources they, they, that they need, but then the education that helps them understand how these are used and how um, things can happen, it doesn't 
it's not there. It just doesn't follow. So that's what also needs to be done. I think especially in the states where you have different variations of um, sex ed, you need to standardize it so that you actually teach people the important facts. I think it's just obviously it's just become a running joke at this point how bad it is in the United States. And I think we can all have we all most of us have horror stories of just how little anybody was taught about this. It's just graced over because it's you're right, Amelia, it's a taboo. And I think with the French making this move, it's an example of a positive development going in the right direction. But as activists in the country have said it, it needs to be accompanied by more. It's a great first step, though. It's a bigger first step than I think we'll ever see stateside, in my opinion. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, can I just say one thing? Yeah. You've been yeah. doing that a lot today. You're like, can I just say one thing? I know, right? I, I don't know. I'm you just being very polite. I know. On. I know. I know. But I just hope that people actually get them because they are free. Kids can be, I don't want to say stupid, silly. Irresponsible. Right? Immature, irresponsible. Silly goose. Silly goose. <laughs> right? I like Next saying word goose. of the day is silly. Yeah, silly. <laughs> but... Please just get them. You don't want to get a disease or anything. There's a lot of scary things out there, so just please go out and get them. Be safe. Yeah, condoms are really synonymous with birth control, but they also yes. prevent disease. Yes. Mm -hmm. That is something in its in and of itself that's important. Because as Macron said, and I think I agree with him looking at these rates, sexual tran sexually transmitted diseases are a huge issue for young people in France because they don't wear protection. It's silly. It's, Period. It's, but it, it just adds up. Yeah. It makes sense. So address the need by giving them protection. That'll help them avoid any sort of diseases in the future, at least minimize the impact of them, because they are rising in the country among the young population. But that'll do it for our discussion on what's going on in France. And to end our show, we're going to welcome on one of our newest department members, Ashley Blum, on the show to give us a live report on Criminal Minds. So, Ashley, first of all, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. We're so excited to have you. So, um, no, whenever you're ready, please take it away. Tell us what's going on yeah. with Criminal Minds. Well, I'm a huge TV nerd, huge series nerd, love watching that stuff. So, <laughs> this was right up my alley. So, ever since 2005, the crime drama series Criminal Minds has entertained millions of fans across the globe with its intense plots, realistic scenes, and lovable characters. The show follows a group of elite FBI profilers analyzing the country's most twisted criminals. The show was always a huge success, but it came to a close at the beginning of 2020 after the end of its 15th season. Ever since then, fans have been hoping for a revival or continuation of the beloved show. So on November 24th of this year, they got their wish. Season 16 of the show was released on Paramount Plus and Disney Plus and immediately received huge amounts of love from the entire Criminal Minds fan base. The new season is entitled Criminal Minds Evolution. Let's just say the creative team has spared no expense in making sure the show's comeback season starts off with a bang. Criminal Minds Evolution follows an FBI team on their attempt to catch an unknown serial killer who has used the pandemic to create a digital network of other serial killers, making it the most complex plot line on the show to date. The revival follows the familiar FBI team from previous seasons, along with some new leading players. This incredible cast includes Joe Montaigne as senior agent David Rossi, Aisha Tyler as Dr. Tara Lewis, Kristen Vangsness as tech agent Penelope Garcia, and Paget Brewster as unit chief Emily Prentice. 
Sadly, Agent Spencer Reed, played by Matthew Gray Gubler, and Agent Aaron Hotchner, played by Thomas Gibson, won't be returning to the show for its revival season. However, the entire Criminal Minds team is hoping to have the characters back on the show in future projects. The entire cast is extremely excited that the end product is finally streaming, and they all agree that the revival season has pushed the entire cast and their respective characters further than any other season in the best way possible. They all claim that this season is the most dramatic and intense one yet. Cast member Joe Montaigne shares his thoughts on the new season. It was different and challenging, but but good in the sense that, especially as an actor, we're given the opportunity to, to, you know, just the fact that we're streaming now as opposed to being on network television, we have greater possibilities anyway. We're able to push the envelope even further in certain directions, whether it's the language we use. It's clear the, to see that Criminal Minds Evolution is making a huge splash in the entertainment industry, just like the original show did, and fans are on the edge of their seats waiting to see what will come next. Thank you so much, Ashley. That was awesome. Thank you, guys. I, I, have you ever seen Criminal Minds? Oh, I have. I, I'm a huge binge watcher. I was very sad when it went off of Netflix, so I'm excited oh, so, that it's back. <laughs> so you're very excited to see this. Oh, I'm so excited. I heard about it. I was like, yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Have any of you guys seen Criminal Minds? Nick, Bill, Amelia? I've seen episodes here and there. I'm not an avid fan, but it is a good show. It can be addicting. It can be. <laughs> I feel like true crime, like crime in general, is becoming more of a fixture i mean you see these true crime podcasts so crime is up in terms of how popular it is and also in cities but that's another issue <laughs> yeah in terms of pop culture we'll stick with yeah that. pop culture <laughs> so yeah guys end of hour two it was jam-packed show as usual but this is finals week so we'll go around the horn one last time how are you feeling going into the week we'll start with our newest recruit ashley how are you feeling well, uh, it's my first semester as a college student. I'm a freshman, so uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes from finals. I'm actually a pre-med student, so I'm a bit nervous because the, the courses are pretty intense, but I think everyone's going through it right now, so I just wish everyone the best of luck. We got this. The countdown has started till break, so let's just stay strong in the last week. All right, Nick. Wow, pre-med. That <laughs> just scares me right away. I want to run away. Wow. But no, that's fantastic. <laughs> And thank you. Uh, when it comes to finals, I'm a little nervous. I do have a criminology test tomorrow. Ooh, speaking of criminology, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yes, good way connection. to tie it in. Yes, Nick. I did that on purpose, obviously. A little nervous, but I'm gonna work hard, and so should all of you. So, good luck. All right, Amelia. Yeah, uh, same thing. A little bit nervous for some of my finals. I have one big one that I'm kind of really focusing in on, um, but we're almost there, guys. And Sibyl. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely um, starting to feel like that stress of finals week, but this is a reminder to you guys and to any other college students listening to remain calm and mindful and in tune with your stress levels. Do what your mind, what your, what your mind needs. You know, if you need to take a break, take a break, but also maintain that drive to succeed. Exactly. I have three tomorrow, but. At this point, I'm ready to go. Um, Ooh, but yeah, two tests and a project I have to do. But that, that'll do it for this show. And for the morning show, for the rest of the month of December, the rest of the month of December, for the rest of the week, they'll be on the air. And then next week, the only show will be Monday until Ooh. the new year. That'll be the last show of the year. The last show with me as Morning Wake Up Call Director. It's been a pleasure. But you're going to hear from us one more time before Hofstra goes home for the holiday season. But from myself... Ashley, Amelia, Sibylla, Nick, have a great rest of your day. If you're a Hofstra student, good luck with finals. And if not, tell a college student good luck with finals because we, we are all going through it right now. 
But until next time, see you then.